Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. And Matthew writes, and he says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he said to the other son and said the same. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. You would join me in prayer as we get started this morning. Lord, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for this day. We thank you for raising us up out of our beds this morning and bringing us to the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far today, Lord, through liturgy and through song, and through confession of sin, Lord, and asking for the prayers, Lord, of, of all the people. Lord, we give you praise for our worship. Lord, we give you praise, God, for being among us and pouring out your spirit among us. And Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you, Lord, through your word and through more singing and through Eucharist and confession of faith, Lord, we pray, God, that our worship would be honorable to you and would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Only he who is only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. Let me read that again. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. By writing these words in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer provides us with what I think is a great summation of the expectations placed upon us by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is this. Believe the gospel and then be obedient to it. So Jesus has been unfolding this very principle for us throughout all of Matthew's gospel through this ordinary season. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learn the law of the kingdom of heaven. Through the parables, we learn how the kingdom of heaven goes out and influences the world. 
And it's also through the parables that we have been instructed how to conduct ourselves according to the law of the kingdom in matters of communal discipline, on the dangers of withholding forgiveness from one another, and the dangers of expecting preferential treatment and rewards over and above that of other believers. Jesus has been leading us to this particular moment so that just as we began ordinary season, we may go out with that same great commission to proclaim the gospel and then teach it to those who believe it to be obedient to it. And we can make this claim based completely upon how he ends this interaction in this text that we have for today. Because three times in those final two sentences in your bulletins, Jesus repeats the word believe. And as we know, or as we should be reminded or instructed, any time that something is constantly repeated in Scripture, especially in very close succession, succession, then it needs to be noted, it needs to be paid attention to. In the Greek, this word is at its root form, pistuo, which means entrust, or to commit, or to have faith in. And this is the exact same word that Jesus uses with his encounter with Nicodemus when he gives the most well-known verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes, whoever entrusts in, whoever commits himself to, whoever has faith in him, will not perish but have eternal life. Belief and obedience are absolutely central to this passage. Because it's through belief and obedience that Jesus illustrates to both the chief priests and to the elders, in this case, representatives of the Sanhedrin. He illustrates to them the great inversion that occurs in the kingdom of God because of his work. That those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. So notice exactly what he tells them in these final two sentences. He says, John came to you, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the, sinner and the prostitutes believed him. But let's not miss the exchange that sets up this final point, especially on this lesson of belief and obedience. Notice at the very beginning, so double back to the top there, Matthew records that Jesus enters the temple, while he, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders go up to him and they ask him two very important questions. By what authority are you doing these things that you are doing? And who gave you this authority to do it? So let me state something from the outset. Let's back away and try to place ourselves within the moment that this happens. Right? Let's try to put our mindset on the moment that this happens. At face value, their question has merit. And this is why. It has merit, just like Peter's question last week in relation to rewards for the believer, had merit at face value. Asking questions isn't a sin. Right? Asking questions is how we learn. Asking questions, it's how we grow. It's how we show ourselves ignorant for the purpose of gaining wisdom and gaining knowledge and gaining experience. But it's what we do with the lesson that comes out of those questions that determines whether or not we will be obedient and believe or if we will be disobedient and fall away. And to be honest, we are very quick to poo-poo the chief elders and the scribes and the Pharisees. But we always do it from a place of 2020 vision. We do it from a place where we have the completed canon of Scripture, right? We know the end game. 
We have a 2,000-year deep well of history of great leaders, of great preachers, of teachers, of theologians and authors to draw from, but we also have that same amount of time of heresies to intentionally avoid. So as we look at this, let's not ever pretend for a moment that we are any better than these men or that our need for Christ is any less than theirs. Because if the situations were reversed, and let's be honest, in moments throughout our lives, the situations pretty much are reversed. We ask the exact same question of Jesus. Who are you? By what means do you do these things? And who gives you that power and authority to do them? So consider the context here. We're not going to do all this reading, but if you were to back up to the earliest parts of chapter 21, Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey where the crowds shout Hosanna at him and worship him as the God King come to the city. And then he immediately, and we discussed this in Sunday school this morning, he immediately then goes after that scene, he goes into the temple, and he drives out the money changers. He overturns their tables. Up until this point, at least in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been somewhat on the fringes, right? They've been aware of him. But he's been out in the countryside preaching, performing miracles, raising the dead. Honestly, he's just been irritating the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who get irritated all the time, right? But now, now he's come into the city. And now he has interrupted their normal ebb and flow of life, particularly their religious life, their worship life. He's interrupted it. And so the priesthood, they have to respond. They have to find out what's going on. They cannot ignore him any longer. And so their question, what they do, their first question, this challenges Jesus' presumption to teach and to perform miracles in the temple like some kind of rabbi and prophet combined. And they ask him, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Basically, they're saying, how can you be both rabbi and prophet? But then their second question, what they do is they assume that Jesus' authority could not have ever come from God. And this is what gives them away. A better way to understand the second question could be something like this. Who do you think your authority actually comes from? And so if Jesus, right, they think they have him trapped. So if he says, well, it comes from human authority, then he's going to contradict every bit of his work for the previous three years. But if he answers divine authority, then they've got him. And they've got him on blasphemy charges. They think they have him trapped. But in the tradition of all great rabbis, Jesus responds not with an answer, but with a question that gives them their answer. He answers their question if they will answer his, right? Jesus is notorious, and we see this in all four Gospels. He's notorious at picking up on when people try to trap him in something. Our Orthodox friends note here, and they state this. They say, by not answering them directly, Jesus teaches us that not to answer people who come asking about holy things with a malicious heart. Or to put it in the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, don't cast your pearls before pigs. And so he asks them this question. He says, okay, fine, here. Look, I'll ask you a question. If if you tell me the answer, then I will respond to yours. So the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Right. Now we read this, right? If we read this completely ignorant of any other context, this kind of feels like a sidestepping of the question, right? We live in a time that has been informed by, if you were asked a question, then you need to give, the proof of evidence is on you. 
you need to give evidence and you need to respond. But Jesus is not giving a politician's answer, right? He's not sidestepping the question here. Because by asking them this question, he's actually providing them with the answer that they're asking him. But he forces them, like a good rabbi, to answer the question for themselves. And if they rightly answer it, then they have the answer to their initial question. But the answer that they give will show where they stand on the issue of Jesus' identity and his authority. And if they can't discern Jesus' authority, then it is because their unbelief and their disobedience has blinded them to God's revelation of Jesus as Messiah. And so by phrasing the question the way that he does, Jesus directly he ties his mission and his work and his authority to the same authority that sent John ahead of him. And so notice what they say in their deliberation. They're not asking or searching for actual truth. They're not even searching for a genuine answer because they have no belief. And because where there is no belief, there can be no obedience. And they have only one concern. Their concern is how to protect themselves. And so again, they deliberate and they say this, well look, you know what, if we say from heaven, then he's, he's got us. He's going to say, well then why didn't you believe John's message? But if we say from man, then we're afraid. We're afraid of the crowds because they hold John to be a prophet. The only way they could answer is in the way they do. We don't know. Right? Because they want to try to preserve their dignity. They don't want to give Jesus the upper hand. But like questions, realizing that we don't know something is also not a weakness. It's not a sin. Understanding that you don't know something is actually a pretty good strength, especially in a learning environment or a religious environment. When we admit that we do not know, we're allowing ourselves to then become teachable. But that's not the concern of the chief priests and the elders of the people. The root problem in their refusal to acknowledge Jesus here is their refusal to acknowledge the consistent demonstrations that he has provided of his authority and his power. And so they give themselves away with their response. We don't know. They show their unwillingness to believe and obey. And here's the other thing we kind of miss. In a very real sense, they have every right and duty to check the credentials of anyone who claims to be a spokesman for God. It's their job. It's part of their job to protect the faith and to protect the people and to protect the institution of the religious order that they've been given from God. It's the same responsibility that all pastors and elders have of the church. This is their role. But because they rejected the revelation that God had already provided them, in both John's ministry as forerunner and in Jesus' ministry as Messiah, because they disbelieved, they proved themselves unprepared to wield their responsibility. And that's Jesus' point. I love the way one commentator responds to this. He says this. He says, Rejection of revelation already given is a very slender basis upon which to ask for more revelation. And then he says this. They raised the question of Jesus' authority, but he raises the question of their competence to even judge such an issue. If he had a mic when he wrote this, he would have dropped it, right? This is a mic drop moment. <laughs> 
And so because they won't answer Jesus, then he, he tells them, look, I'm not going to answer you. You will receive no more revelation. And he refuses, he refuses to reveal heavenly things to those who have deliberately placed themselves outside of the kingdom by their disbelief and their disobedience. And he'd already told them as much. He, said that, he says this, quoting Isaiah in chapter 13 of Matthew, he says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. If we do not accept the revelation that God has deemed sufficient, then we should not call it insufficient, and then expect God to turn around and provide us with more. They had rejected the revelation received. And so then, as his habit, Jesus does, what he does is he presents them with a parable in order to illustrate his point. And so he just asks them, he's like, all right, fine, you know what, you won't answer me, but what do you think about this? A man had two sons. He goes to the first son and he says, son, go into the vineyard and work today. And his son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And that son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. So like last week, what Jesus is doing is he's comparing the kingdom once again to a vineyard. And the father has commanded his two sons, the children of his kingdom, to go into his vineyard and to work it and to keep it, to take possession of it, and to ensure its health and its growth. And so what Jesus is illustrating for both the chief priests and the elders of the people, again, is that same great inversion principle that occurs in the kingdom of God, that he also illustrated for Peter and the apostles last week. Those who are last will enter the kingdom first. And they enter the kingdom based upon their belief and obedience. They believe the message, they believe the work, they hear the word of their father, and they obey it, and they enter the kingdom. Obedience from children in this culture was absolutely expected with no questions asked. So think about it in contrast to our own time. Right? Children's predispositions toward things. Their sassiness, right? We excuse some sassiness from kids, right? We excuse quirkiness, right? Well, that's just a personality type conflict. We ex whatever it might be, these things were never ever considered as a factor. If a child was given an order, a child was expected to obey. You obey. And if children, the children were to mind the parents and the grandparents, not the other way around. We don't see that in our own culture today. So this does not have as much of a shock value as it does for the original audience. Because this refusal of the first son was meant to shock them, to get their attention. It shows his disobedience to his father. It shows his disrespect for his father, his rejection of his father, and the rejection of the responsibilities that he had been given. It shows, ultimately, the rejection of the person and work of Christ from someone who is presented with the gospel, and then they reject it. But he tells us, for the one who believes, like the first son eventually does, they change their minds. They repent. The mind of the first son is not only changed, but his heart changed. His predisposition towards his father changes. 
And because of this, the first son shows his belief by his obedience. He may have been obstinate at first, but he repented and he obeyed in the end. And this is what matters. So the first son, Jesus tells them, he says, these represent the tax collectors. These represent the prostitutes. Frankly, guys, this represents you and me as Gentiles. The unwanted of society. Those who initially disbelieve, but in the end, they repent and they believe and they are obedient. They are the last who become first in the kingdom of God. But the second son is the complete opposite. The second son publicly, so everyone can see, displays a willingness to obey his father. He even calls his father sir or lord as a sign of respect. Absolutely, Lord, I will go. But he, show, but he shows his disbelief and his disrespect. He shows his disbelief by his disobedience, by not going into the vineyard to work it and to keep it and to see to its health and its growth. And the second son is meant to represent the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of the people. These give the father a public appearance of obedience. But by their disobedience, they show their disbelief. These, as Paul tells us in Romans 9, these are those who were meant to be first in the kingdom, but instead end up last if they believe in Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 9, starting in verse 4, he says, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. To them belong the glory. To them belong the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. The promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your seed be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is Jesus' point in these final two verses that we are circling back to now. Because he asked them, he says, who does the will of the Father in this story? And they have no option but to respond. And you can imagine it is a very gritted teeth angry response. The first son does the will of the Father. And he's doing more than making a rhetorical point to them. right? He's He's summarizing for them this principle of belief and obedience. Those who claim to be God's people must show it by doing his will and obeying his commands. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And so by asking them this question, Jesus forces them to conclude that they are not doing the will of the Father. Again, this is the great inversion. The last become first, and the first become last. And then he references John a second time. And he tells them, he says, look, John came to you in the way of righteousness. He came to you proclaiming the promise that was about to be fulfilled in the Christ who was to follow. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed John's message. They obeyed. They received John's baptism of repentance and they prepared the way for the coming Lord. They made straight the paths of their hearts to receive the coming Messiah. But then Jesus drives home his point. He cuts to the quick, to use Acts 2 language here. 
And he states this, he says, And even when you saw it, you did not change your mind. You did not repent. You did not believe John. I firmly believe this word it here. I think Jesus is referring to himself. When you saw it, when you saw me, when you saw that his prophecy, the way of righteousness, was fulfilled in me through my signs, through my teaching, through my miracles, through raising the dead, through healing the sick, you have been given enough proof. You've been given enough revelation. You've been given enough authority. But you still refuse to repent and believe. John's ministry had been, given to, had been given to them to give them the opportunity to repent. And even after yelling at them and calling them a brood of vipers, John still follows that up with this phrase, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But they reject that call. They remained disobedient and they continued to question and seek further signs of authority and revelation from God. And so as we prepare to come to the table, let's, let's be reminded of a very intentional point here. This parable, this teaching, is not meant to illustrate that salvation is by works. Rather, Jesus is illustrating that doing the will of God, being obedient to God, is inseparably linked with repentance and belief. Bringing us full circle to that original point from Bonhoeffer. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. This has always been the expectation placed upon us by the gospel. Believe it. Change your mind. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about your standing before God and repent. And then obey his word and his commands. Go into the vineyard. Take possession of it. And work it for the good of its growth until the end of the age. John even tells us in his first letter, he says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, also, uh, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. Because whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, then in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may be sure that we are in Christ. Whoever says that he abides in Christ ought to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. So may we all believe in Christ, come to know him and have life in his name. May we be obedient to his commands, walking in the way in which he walked, to the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen.